This is New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Coming up, would American journalism be better if there were more minority ownership? There's no guarantee that just because you have minority ownership that the coverage will be more representative and fair than existed under white ownership. The manufacturing of hysteria against minorities in America. I think the reason for it is to control the population, to keep the tendency to dissent down to a minimum. How a global pop star is making a difference for the little people. Through philanthropy and through NGOs, you cannot change a country. Yes, we have to play our part. And music is a powerful medium to spread the word. All that and more coming up on New America Now. In over 35 years as an American journalist, Juan Gonzalez has done more than leave his mark. He's played a pivotal and crucial role in changing the face of American journalism. As co-host of the award-winning Democracy Now!, he and his team proved that not only is it possible to create a national news program that is independent of corporate and power structures, but that millions of Americans will like it and watch it. Today, he joins us to discuss his new book with co-author Joe Torres of the Washington-based Free Press, called News for All the People, The Epic Story of Race and the American Media. Welcome to the show, One. Oh, thank you for having me, Shireen. It's incredible that you've written this book. I mean, in the jacket of the book, you have a quote from Bill Moyers where he says, I can't believe this book exists. Uh, well, it took, it took several years, about uh, seven or eight years of, of research and writing, but actually it's been a sort of uh, a life experience for both Joe and I in, in terms of the amount of time we've spent in journalism as a whole. I've been now in, in, as a working journalist now for close to 35 years. So really summing up some of that, those experiences, but more importantly, the seven or eight years of research that we've done into the media system of America itself and how it evolved. Well, let's let our listeners know what the gist of this book is. It's an enormous book and it's a research book. What is it about? Well, the, basically, it uh, the the title "News for All the People: The Epic Story of Race in the American Media" uh, it captures a portion of the book, but not completely. It, basically, what we tried to do is we tried to get an understanding of why the American media system as a whole has been so resistant over so many generations to telling the full stories of the, of the diverse nationalities and races within America, uh, but also. Um, uh, how our media system developed, because if you're ever going to try to fix the problem, you first have to understand how the problem came into being. So we actually look at the evolution of the system of news in America from the first colonial newspaper in 1690 to today to what is happening on the Internet. Uh, and we try to sort of draw the lessons of uh, of what were the key moments in the evolution of the system uh, and how were decisions made uh, that created the system that we have today where you have 1,400 daily newspapers, about 12,000 radio stations, about 1,200 commercial television stations, hundreds of channels uh, on cable systems. You've got news at 5, at 6, at 10, 11. The, the American people are literally drowning 
in news and information, yet they are so remarkably misinformed about the world around them. And how is it possible that we have so much media and so little knowledge? Uh, and that's what I uh, tried to get at with my co-author, Joe Torres, to try to get at that and also to understand how race and racial conflict fit into the picture. And one of the things that we discovered that uh, while race issues are normally treated in the press sort of as marginal side issues. The reality is when you look at the development of the press in America, race and racial conflict have been central to the evolution of the press. Uh, And uh, so that we are trying to reinterpret the history of the American press by placing race at the center of the issues and themes that it had to deal with, but also understanding how the system itself was constructed. Let's get to how the system was constructed, because you start out your book, even in the introduction, telling Americans, the Americans that will read your book, a basic fact that most of us don't know, which is that the government started regulating the media from day one. Yes. And and, and, well, not only regulating, but also making our media possible, uh, because the uh, the first great uh, Internet or was the postal system of the United States. And people now, everyone talks about all the postal systems in crisis, the postal system is bankrupt, but people don't understand how important the postal system was uh, to news and information. Because for most of the uh, 19th century and even into the 20th century, the main job of the postal system in America was not to deliver letters, was to deliver newspapers. And that was uh, 90% of the weight of postal mail throughout the 19th century was newspapers. Because the government, the founders of the country in a great debate in 1792 when they created the postal system, decided that the dissemination of news and information to the people was critical to maintaining the young republic uh, and for it to be able to grow uh, and for the citizens to be uh, be the best citizens they could. So that uh, there was a huge debate early on. Should the government deliver newspapers for free to the people? Should it deliver them at market rates or something in between? Uh, with, and, we got something in between. and we got something in between, which is called a second class of postage, which is how bulk mail and newspapers are delivered. Uh, but that was a subsidized system. So the government decided early on that news and information was so important that the government should create a subsidized system to deliver to the people. And as a result, the American people had more newspapers per capita than any people in the history of the world. Thousands of newspapers developed in, in, in many towns and communities, had three, four, five, some big cities, 10, 15 newspapers. And there was a remarkable diversity of viewpoint to the point that African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans were also able to have newspapers early on because the government was delivering them. So that, for instance, most people don't know that the city of New Orleans alone had 25 Spanish language newspapers before the Civil War before the Civil War, that Native Americans had their own press, African Americans, uh, so that you had this vibrant press that developed because of a federal policy uh, in communications. Then there were others that came later on with the advent of the telegraph, then radio and, and cable, and now the Internet. At each stage, as a new technology developed to disseminate news and information, it upset the existing order, and then the government had to step in and try to figure out, because, for instance, early radio. In early radio in the early 1900s, there were thousands of amateur radio operators all taking to the airways at the same time. Their signals were interfering with each other. There was a, there was a remarkable diversity, but there was also a clash of signals. So the government then had to come in through the Federal Radio Act in 1927, the Federal Communications Act, 
and regulate the airwaves. But in the process of doing something that was necessary, they also turned over the most valuable frequencies to the newly developing networks, uh, the NBC network and the CBS network, and they drove all of the few African-Americans and Latinos that were already in radio off the air, the educational stations off the air, and handed basically our radio system over to the networks and a few newspaper and uh, several newspapers, which also started their own radio stations. And so that was the government policy that hurt diversity. Whereas, whereas in 1792, government policy promoted diversity of viewpoint, uh, come along with radio, and it actually hurt diversity of viewpoint and established a sort of centralized network control of our news system through NBC, CBS, and later ABC. So you and your co-author Joe Torres go quite a great deal into the fact that decentralization is the solution that you see uh, in order for the ethnic media to be able to be heard. Well, one of the things that we've realized is when in those periods of time when government leaders uh, decided in favor of decentralized uh, uh, information flow, uh, people of color were able to be heard, were able to produce their own uh, uh, newspapers and radio stations and, uh, and, and cable shows. And whenever it gets centralized, uh, then the people of color, dissident political views, uh, women uh, and marginalized groups are, are shut out of the system so that it is in the direct interest of uh, especially of the ethnic media, but of all Uh, folks who are concerned about a democratic media system that we always maintain the most decentralized and autonomous media system possible. Well, let's get to that ownership issue, because you mentioned in your book that there's at least 33 percent minorities, ethnic minorities in this country. And you give us a detailed breakdown of how tiny that number is for ethnic ownership. Yes. Well, there has been an explosion of, of weekly newspapers uh, and, and, and local websites among uh, the ethnic minority press. But when you talk about daily newspapers, major national sites, when you talk about uh, the major television and radio stations, which are still the dominant form of how most people get their news and information, uh, there's, uh, it's down now there are virtually – only a handful of minority-owned daily newspapers in the United States out of 1,400. Uh, there are about uh, 7% ownership in radio and about 3% in television. And yet uh, the pe- people of color now make up about 30, 35% of the population and will soon be 50% of the population. So we're, we're facing the possibility that soon the country, there may be a white minority in the country, but all of the major vehicles for news and information, uh, then the national vehicles will be controlled by that white minority. And that's an inherently undemocratic system. Uh, that's why minority ownership becomes such a critical issue in terms of a, great, a more diverse and democratic media system. But when you talk about minority ownership or of uh, major media in this country, do you perhaps assume that if a minority is running a network that they're going to speak for the majority of their people? I mean, let's talk about someone like, I don't know, Claire Clarence Thomas, he's not exactly speaking for the majority of his people, is he? No, it's abs- there's no guarantee that uh, just because you have uh, minority ownership that the coverage will uh, be uh, more representative and fair uh, than existed under white ownership. 
There's no guarantee, but there is a far greater likelihood uh, because, generally speaking, those owners and, in fact, the FCC about 10 years ago did a series of studies, uh, uh, which they called Does Ownership Matter? And what they found in, when they, uh, in their studies was that when a radio station or a television station was owned uh, by uh, uh, people from uh, minority communities, they were more likely to have certain kinds of programming, more community interest programming, more programming for uh, senior citizens, uh, uh, more, and they were far more likely to hire people of racial minorities to be their reporters, to be their salespeople, uh, to be their staffs. So that in both the hiring processes uh, and in especially uh, there's a far greater likelihood that uh, minority-owned companies will cover minority commu- uh, communities in a different light than what has existed throughout the history of the country, which is basically to treat uh, racial minorities as a, a threat to the development of the country rather than as a contributors and builders of the United States of America. So you mentioned earlier that race has been an important part of the media from day one in this country. What did you mean by that? Well, we went back to the first newspaper in the United States. So actually, it was in the colonial period. Uh, it was public occurrences in 1690 in uh, Boston, in, in, the, in the Massachusetts colony. And we looked at all the early colonial newspapers. What do we find? We find that in public occurrences, a newspaper of only three pages, um, the bulk of the articles were intelligence reports to the settlers about what the quote, barbaric Indians or the skulking savages were doing. Uh, and the bulk of the copy of that first newspaper was about Native Americans uh, and about how the settlers could maintain the Native Americans under control or as not as a threat. There was only, of the five, there was only one, what you could call positive story, about Native Americans, and that was about how a group of Christianized Indians had decided to have a service on Thanksgiving. Uh, so the only positive article was about Native Americans who had adopted European uh, the European culture and religion. Uh, and you find the same in the in the in uh, succeeding newspapers in terms of uh, Africans. A lot, a lot of the copy was about. Uh, slave insurrections, about violence by individual free blacks or slaves against their masters. Uh, and uh, the, the early colonial press was filled with stories about how to maintain the natives and the African slaves under control. Uh, and, uh, and this became the template for how the, the, the media would continue to cover uh, people of color uh, and Interestingly, we found numerous examples where newspaper editors and publishers not only created a racial narrative, uh, a white racial narrative, but where they actually organized, used their papers to organize and instigate massacres, to uh, organize and instigate uh, pogroms, uh, to organize and instigate riots uh, uh, against uh, Native Americans, against the Chinese, uh, against the uh, of the Mexican settlers of the old Mexican territory after it was incorporated into the United States. Uh, so the, uh, the, the, the number of examples that we found uh, where 
newspapers were directly involved, and later on radio stations uh, and TV stations were directly involved in fomenting violence against people of color, makes us think that this was not the aberration or the uh, craziness of one individual publisher or... There was a pattern. There was exactly a pattern uh, and uh, throughout American history of the press being used in this way. Thank you so much for joining us today, Juan. Okay, and thank you for having me. Juan Gonzalez is an award-winning journalist, co-host of Democracy Now!, and author of a new book with Joe Torres called News for All the People, The Epic Story of Race and the American Media. You're listening to New America Now. If you'd like to hear more from this guest, visit us online at newamericanow.org. America is a melting pot, a coming together of different peoples from different countries, religions, ethnicities, and ideologies. It began with immigration, and it moves forward with it. But it's never been easy being different in America. Author Jay Feldman's new book takes a look at how difficult it has been for every kind of American minority that you can imagine. His book is called Manufacturing Hysteria, a history of scapegoating, surveillance, and secrecy in modern America. And he joins us today to tell us what he has learned. Jay, welcome to New America Now. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. So tell us, why would the U.S. government be interested in scapegoating minorities? Well, first of all, let me say that this is not the only place that such things happen. These things happen everywhere. But as an American, I'm most interested in the history of it here. And as Americans, we've always been taught that we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. I think the reason for it is to control the population, to keep the tendency to dissent down to a minimum, to uh, minimize the dissenting voices who would question, for example, war or the scapegoating of what group shall we mention? What does it mean to be American? What does the government want from a resident or citizen of this country, so that they will not be scapegoated, they will not be targeted in this way? Well, I don't know if it's specifically anything from, but I know the government does not like dissent in any form. And I think the concern, as much as it is against immigrant populations and the other groups that I've mentioned is the questioning of government policy so that after 9-11, we've also seen surveillance of anti-globalization, the anti-globalization movement. So it seems it has to do with uh, limiting dissent and criticism of government policies. So in the beginning of our discussion, you mentioned World War I and what happened with George Creel and his now infamous Creel Commission. Can Noam Chomsky and, uh, and Howard Zinn and, and now you and many others have, have made reference to the 
Committee on Public Information. Yeah, to the significance of the Committee on Public Information. Can you tell us about what it was and, and what it did? It was a did? propaganda agency. It was established by Woodrow Wilson as a new arm of the government. And they put out uh, pamphlets. They published pamphlets. They they produced movies. They put up roadside advertising. And the the purpose, the expressed purpose, it wasn't even hidden, was to create a hatred of Germany and and all things German, which included German-Americans. And the press was complicit so that the New York Herald, for example, published a list of all German aliens, alien enemies by that time, after the United States got into the war, a list of all alien enemies living in New York City, complete with their addresses. And this took a a month to appear in the paper over the course of a month. I mean, Germans at that time were the largest ethnic minority in the United States. They still are, actually. I mean, uh, uh, the German-American institutes will tell you that uh, approximately 40% of all Americans have approximately 25% German ancestry. Yeah, it's not surprising. So they're they're just not being targeted anymore, but they were back then with the Krill Commission. Yes. What's what's interesting is that, as you mentioned in your book, the, the Krill Commission was assigned the task of, quote, selling the war to an initially skeptical citizenry. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, the United States public was not in favor of getting involved in World War I. I mean, uh, this was a whole ocean away. This was in, in, in the days when crossing the ocean was, was, was a large proposition. Uh, it wasn't when you could just hop on an airplane and come on over here. And so the government had to create the uh, impression that America was in danger. Uh, a large part of it was the arms manufacturers who stood to let to make quite a, lo- a lot of money during the uh, war. J.P. Morgan lent vast sums of money to the Allied uh, countries. And so the Committee on Public Information, the Creel Committee, was responsible for, they were invested with the responsibility for turning the public around and one of the th- one of the ways that it was done was to create the impression that there were spies German spies under every rock and that espionage was um, about to happen in every neighborhood in the United States and it was they were very successful at doing that and then the um, the focus was widened to create the same type of animosity towards all other dissenting groups, the ones that I mentioned earlier, pacifists, socialists, wobblies, anarchists, Mennonites, and Irish Americans. Is there a Creel Commission today? <laughs> well, the the media certainly plays a cheerleading role for that. That's a, that's a good question, and... Um, I would have to think carefully and about it. Uh, and speak softly. <laughs> <laughs> what is the media doing today? You're sort of suggesting that it's maybe a partner in, in government crackdowns on dissent. The, media, the mainstream media has always been complicit in the crackdown on dissent and the creation, the scapegoating and the creation of hysteria. 
wherever you, whenever you look at the history, the government couldn't do it alone if they didn't have the cooperation of the mainstream media. Of the purveyors of mass information. Yes. Information or misinformation, as the case may be. Indeed. How do you see this playing out in the future? Do you think this will ever end? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't really say. But I think, you know, the, the one possibility we have of changing this pattern is, first of all, simply by becoming aware of it uh, and asking ourselves, is this really the best way to behave? And I'll give you just one quick example. that the um, During the Depression, more than half a, between half a million and a million Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were either deported or, quote, voluntarily repatriated to Mexico. Many of these people were had been in this country for decades and had entered the country when there were no penalties for crossing the border without uh, a passport. There was no border enforcement. They didn't become citizens because of the language barrier, but they were nevertheless productive members of society. Uh, they were rounded up and sent back to Mexico, uh, including many citizens, Mexican-American citizens, who were born in this country or had become naturalized. Fast forward 20 years to Operation Wetback during the uh, Eisenhower administration, 1954. In six months, they managed to round up the same half million people and send them home uh, to Mexico. And now we're seeing it for the third time. And you really have to ask yourself, in no other terms, is this an effective policy? Does it work? It doesn't seem to because it's, we're, here we are doing it for, for the third time. And in fact, the Justice Department just a couple of weeks ago said they were going to review 300,000 deportation cases of, of Mexican and other Latinos. And they were going to concentrate on the individuals with criminal records. Well, that's a policy that makes sense to me. But just this wanton uh, rounding up and shipping back to Mexico, that's something that doesn't make sense to me. Jay Feldman, thank you so much for joining us today. A wonderfully researched book. Well, thank you. It's uh, been my pleasure. Author Jay Feldman's new book is Manufacturing Hysteria, a history of scapegoating, surveillance, and secrecy in modern America. Listening to New America Now, dispatches from the New Majority on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. Obama was elected president in 2008. More than anything, he was touted as the first black president. 
Many Americans of all backgrounds and ethnicities were moved by the idea that there would finally be a black family in the White House. But author and scholar Clarence Lussane knew better. His new book, The Black History of the White House, is a comprehensive statement about the fact that black people have not only lived in the White House before the Obamas, but they actually built it. Welcome to the show, Clarence Lussane. Thank you. So you mentioned at the beginning of your book that uh, while your aim is to address the history of black people in the White House, you regret that you actually can't say who the first black person was in the White House. Yes, no one knows that exactly. Part of it because the issue of when did the White House actually become the White House is a bit fluid uh, in the sense of if we're talking about the first black person who was in the house where the president existed, then that actually is not the White House that exists in Washington, D.C. That was probably in New York where the government was before it moved to Philadelphia. Then it was in Philadelphia for about eight and a half years. Then it came to Washington because the city had to be built for 10 years. Now, what's known for a fact is that the building of Washington, D.C., and in particular the Capitol and the White House itself, involved black labor, principally black slave labor. So that we actually have some information on. And there were at least five black carpenters, for example, who worked inside of the White House in 1792, 1793, 1794. And how do we know all this stuff? Because the research has been done. And there are, uh, there's data, there's invoices, for example, uh, where you can see how much people were actually paid or the people who owned the enslaved people who worked there, how much they were getting paid per month uh, to rent out people to do the work in the White House, on the Capitol, and everything else that had to be done. And so a lot of that is data that no one just looked at or thought was that relevant before in terms of looking at how does this issue of race embed itself in American history. So the black history of the White House or the black history of of the houses of any president of this country started with slavery. It absolutely did. And, you know, my argument is that, in a sense, we're not talking about black history, we're talking about American history, because it really is not just the experiences of black people, but that's an experience in relationship to how the country developed as a whole. And from the beginning of the country, uh, from the decision to break from England, to the development of the foundational documents like the Declaration of Independence, Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution all embodied this contradiction between slavery and freedom, between liberation and oppression. And that's part of the history, uh, much of which is written out of it, uh, that needs to be put back in. And part of it, when we look at Barack Obama and having a black president, there is a history and a context to that that most Americans do not have information about. And so part of what I was when, trying to do with the book was to pri- provide that history and context. When you say that there was slavery, people get a sense that maybe there was a, a disconnect, maybe there wasn't a, a human relationship there. But you describe in your book the case of Hercules, the chef right. of the first president, George Washington. And there's, there was something there. It was something more than master-slave. There was always something there more than master-slave, but master-slave was the context. And I want to stress that because I think probably for most Americans, they don't think about the issues of slavery 
uh, existing in the White House. Now, people are aware, of course, that slavery existed during the period of the presidents that preceded Lincoln. But most people probably don't know that 12 out of those 16 presidents, 15 presidents before Lincoln were slave owners. And at least eight of them had slaves inside of the White House. So when Barack Obama talks about or people talk about him thinking of standing on the shoulders of Abraham Lincoln and Roosevelt and Kennedy, uh, he's also standing on the shoulders of these African-Americans who also had a relationship and experience through the White House. And that also is part of the story. Well, there's also a, a white history of blacks in the White House. You mentioned that while some many of the presidents didn't own slaves and they were even against slavery, they really didn't say anything about it. They didn't talk about it. They were in a position to do something, to say something at least, and they just didn't do it. Yeah, there were uh, several categories of presidents around the issue of slavery. One, uh, there were the presidents who were just absolutely unabashedly pro-slavery and absolutely thought that that was the role that African-Americans uh, needed to play always. People like presidents like uh, Jackson, for example. Then you had the presidents who saw themselves personally, at least, as anti-slavery, but they were not necessarily pro-abolition. And then you had the presidents who were anti-slavery or you had a president who was anti-slavery, eventually became pro-abolitionist, but that did not necessarily mean that he was pro-equality. Who was that? Uh, Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And so you get these different ranges of how presidents related to slavery. But even the presidents who didn't own slaves, and there were like four maybe preceding Lincoln, particularly John Adams and John Quincy Adams, who came from a long family of anti-slavery politics, when they were president, they virtually did very little. And then John Quincy Adams goes into Congress and suddenly he's looking at policies and legislation against slavery. Right. So John Quincy Adams stands out because uh, once he uh, leaves the presidency, there's an interim period. Then he comes back to Congress and then he becomes this major force in Congress uh, fighting on the interests of the anti-slavery constituents. And so everything from petitions to the Amistad case uh, where there was a ship that was taken over by people who were enslaved on it, and it ended up uh, in the U.S. courts and determining whether or not these people who had rebelled should be free or should go back into slavery. And he argued on the side of their freedom, and eventually they were, they were able to uh, be liberated. So you get John Quincy Adams playing a very critical and important role, but this is after his presidency. And you've covered a lot of the names, names in American history that uh, many people didn't know had been to the White House. Yeah. And so, you know, starting from the beginning of the book, each chapter opens with a story about a, uh, an individual uh, who had some relationship to the White House. And through their narrative, uh, it gives us an opportunity to look at a lot of the broader issues that were being uh, affected at that particular time. So, for example, the book opens with the story of Oni Judge, who was a young woman who was enslaved to the Washingtons. Uh, and George Washington and Martha Washington uh, were in uh, Philadelphia for most of the presidency while the nation's capital was being built. Now, uh, Washington actually had a couple of problems. One was that 
uh, Philadelphia was a stronghold for the abolitionist movement. So during his entire presidency, there were petitions, there were lobbying that was going on. There was an effort to push Washington to actually do something policy-wise in terms of addressing the issue of slavery. Let's let's flash forward to now. I mean, when we think of the White House and black people, one name comes to mind, especially here in the Bay Area, and that's Condoleezza Rice. Right. She was very strongly associated with the White House. Uh, she spent a great deal of time there with the man she referred to as her husband, <laughs> which was the president of the United States, George W. Bush. Right. Uh, yeah. What happens after the 1950s uh, when you start to get the initial African-Americans on the presidential political staff Uh, Then every president, Democrat or Republican, recognized the need to have at least the facade of diversity uh, in terms of how their cabinet looks and how their personal staff looks. And so Condoleezza Rice uh, was actually in the White House earlier because she had been there during the uh, Ronald Reagan period uh, because of her expertise on Russia. Uh, And then she was brought back uh, when George W. Bush came in, uh, along with Colin Powell, in part because... Uh, Bush needed to have this face of diversity, but also because her politics essentially matched his in terms of what he wanted on the international, or at least he was willing to let her play a leading role uh, because Bush actually did not have a lot of ideas uh, about foreign policy. And so she played a very decisive role in shaping the foreign policy direction of the Bush administration. And then it turns out that uh, we suddenly see a softer side to Condoleezza Rice when President Barack Obama was uh, elected. Well, this is the thing about Obama's election. You know, he won like 95, 97 percent of the black vote. So clearly he got not just black Democrats and black independents, but even black Republicans and both Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell, I'm willing to bet, uh, even though they may never admit it, uh, voted for Barack Obama. But that's because Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell, as hardline and reactionaries they've been on international policy, they actually have been much more moderate on domestic policy compared to some of the other black Republicans. And so it's probably not that surprising that uh, in some instances Condoleezza Rice is not as extreme as as people would expect on domestic policy, compared particularly, again, to some of the other black Republicans. So we have a a very rich history of black people in the White House, and now we suddenly have the Obamas. They are the first black first family. Right. Uh, What are the implications of that? Well, I think there are a wide range of implications. One, I think part of the reason we saw such a reaction, not just in the U.S., but globally, is because people do have a sense of this journey from slavery all the way up to the point where someone can be elected president. But also, I think the image of the black family has been so uh, damaged and has been such a target of conservatives to have a family that really is a loving family where the kids are really kind of seem to be you know, very precocious and very smart, and the family uh, is together. You know, really is a critical image 
to have in kind of repairing this kind of assault that's been there historically on the black family in all of its different shapes and forms, because it's really an assault on black people as a whole. And I think part of what the Obamas have done is to put some brakes on that and show that they're very smart, very committed uh, very caring kind of people. And that really does reflect oh, generally what the black community is about. Clarence Lusane, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Clarence Lusane's new book, The Black History of the White House, is published by City Lights Books. New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Pop star Shehzad Roy was a teenage heartthrob, releasing his first album when he was still in high school. Today, the Pakistani singer is world-renowned, idolized by young fans in Pakistan, India, and South Asia, and followed with glee by his millions of fans in the worldwide South Asian diaspora. But he's not just a pretty face and voice, he's also a humanitarian. Through his NGO, Zindagi Trust, he has dedicated his life to helping underprivileged children in Pakistan get a better life and an education. He joins us today during his visit to the U.S. to raise money for his charity through concerts across the nation. Welcome to the show, Shazadroy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You were last in the U.S. in 2009. Yep. That was a few months after President Obama took office. Have you noticed anything different in this country? Uh, I've heard about healthcare system, and uh, <laughs> it's really controversial, but I, I think uh, uh, he was doing the right thing. So I, I, I support Obama. As, as someone who comes from a country like Pakistan that has so many uh, different kinds of fundamental needs, such as um, issues to do with poverty, education, women's rights, and other issues, do you think it's a responsibility of someone like yourself who's in the public eye to turn to philanthropy? Uh, first of all, I would like to mention this over here, that I, I personally think that um, through philanthropy and through NGOs, you cannot change a country. Yes, we have to play our part. And music is a powerful medium to spread the word. So this is what I'm trying to do. I've st established this organization um, uh, roughly around seven years ago, Zindagi Trust. Um, but yes, we're trying to play our part. And it's important that um, uh, we have to talk about education and healthcare. And obviously, poverty is there in Pakistan. So I think it's our duty, yes. If if people know you, people listen to you, then then I think it's it's, it's our duty to, to come forward and do this. Well, you mentioned two prongs. As someone in the pub public eye, you not only use your art to get so certain social and political messages out, but you've also started this organization, this, this charity organization, Zindagi Trust. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what the... Uh, what the purpose of that organization is specifically? Uh, basically, we're trying to reform the education system in Pakistan. And uh, the first program I started was I'm Paid to Learn. Um, in this program, we were trying to compensate them when they were losing outside, basically. We were paying the working children to come to school, and we were pay paying them stipend. Um, so wherever these kids were working, we used to establish uh, the school uh, or rent a building, and uh, it was like education at the doorstep. 
So, but uh, we still have 3,000 students studying in this program. But, but in 2007, I realized that through this program, I won't be able to create any dent on the education system. Then I realized that only if I'll, if I'll turn around government schools, only then we'll be able to create a dent. So we took a transfer management of, of a government school. And now I'm trying to reform government schools in Pakistan. How do so you we, reform po- government schools in Pakistan? I mean, that's, uh, that's a lot of schools, first of all. And then there's a lot of things that you need to do. Um, this is the reason we are just trying to create uh, models. What I'm saying that I cannot uh, reform all the government schools, but what we're trying to do is um, we're pushing the government and we're creating a model. We're talking about changing the books. We're talking about changing the policies. We're talking about changing the paradigm of government schools in Pakistan. So we have created one model, and through that model, we, we have started a dialogue with the government that you can't use these textbooks. You can't do this. You can't do this. So we have a model available, and as I said before, that only government or leaders can change a country. We can't. So well, we, can, we can build blocks. So this is what we are trying to do. Well, is the government being responsive to the, the model that you've presented to them? They're not against us. So, um, uh, and, um, and they're not very serious about it. Uh, it's not their priority, but they're not really against it. So we're pushing them. It's, it's a slow, gradual process. You know, the biggest dilemma of Pakistan is that we don't have thought-provoking books in our own language. Well, I want to ask about that. What, what's wrong with the textbooks that, that you the say? The system that is based text- on rote learning. It's not about uh, asking questions. It's not because I, I, I believe that 50% of our knowledge is in the right question. And the books we're teaching, it's, the whole system is based on rote learning, memorizing and regurgitating. So, so we have to change the systems. So this is the reason we are writing books. And, you know, it's been 63 years. Nobody has uh, ever changed a single book. And this is for the first time in the history of Pakistan will be my organization wrote um, a, a math book. And um, we got the notification from the federal government and provincial government to change the book all over the province. And, and do you expect that that will happen anytime soon? We got the notification. So the class one math book will be changed. Next, the, the, we will have this book implemented next year. And, and, and where will it be implemented? In the province Sindh, where I live. Okay, in the entire province, all yeah. of the uh, class grammar one ma- schools. Class one math book, government schools. Okay. And and how how do you do that? I mean, do you have you've hired mathematical professors to help you? Uh, not professors, but we got some very good math, uh, people who who were writing books, and we have some good private uh, uh, publishing companies in Pakistan. It's just that that government is not ready to accept their books. So we wrote a book. Uh, we got some experts, and um, uh, we asked the government that this is the class one math book, and you have to change it. And we pushed it. It was not that easy. Obviously, we we really uh, had to work hard, but finally we got the notification so it's it's a it's a baby step but once you've taken the baby step now somebody else will come and they'll say we have to change the math textbooks of class two or class three then slowly and gradually you start talking about the change we're not talking about the right issues in pakistan the problem is that we're not talking about the right issues well this is interesting that you're talking about problems with math books in in countries throughout the world even in this country the the issue of concern for people who want to reform education is not reforming math books. Math is pretty much fact-based. It's science, it uses a scientific method. It's, it's science fact. What people usually are trying to change is history books. Are you, are you at, at all interested you know, in taking when, on that challenge? You know, whenever we talk about history, everyone says the history, the, the history they teach is distorted and it's not right, and, and, and they're right, I think. But... 
you know, choose a battle big enough to matter, small enough to win. So I said that if I'm going to start talking about history books, they'll talk about Islam, Pakistan, Kashmir. There were so many controversies. Controversies. So I thought that math. Let's talk about math. You okay. decided to start safe. Yeah. So it's safe, and um, I thought that you know uh, it took us six months just to fight uh, and convince the government that you have to change this book, and they finally accepted it. So I'm just saying that they're not really, you know. I think now, you know, it's about time that we can push the government to change things. It's just that we're not talking about the right issues. Obviously, I'm not saying that they are ready to change everything, but we can. Again, I'm I'm going to repeat myself that we are, we are not taking baby steps. This is this is the 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 issue in Pakistan right now. So this is fascinating. This is part of what you do in Zindagi Trust yeah. as part of your charity. But you do a lot with your music as well. Starting around in 2008, your music actually started taking on a political tone. Uh, for instance, with the song Laga Re. Can you tell us a little bit about that song? Um, when I started reforming government school, um, SMB Fatma Jinnah Government School, it's, it's, right now it's an institution in Pakistan. It's a model for all the government schools. So when I was reforming this government school, uh, the problems I faced after that, I wrote the song. And um, uh, in 2008, uh, the, the six songs were political in my album. So the inspiration was this school, basically. What is Laga Ray about? What is your song about? Laga is all about just uh, keep on going. But I'm saying it sarcastically. <laughs> Why are you saying it sarcastically? Because people are just saying, they're just saying that let's, let's do this, let's do this, but they're not doing it intelligently. So I'm just saying let's do this then. Keep on going. <laughs> well, how do, you, how do you feel, though, as, an, as a Pakistani in the United States right now? Uh, perfectly fine, safe, because I'm just talking about, I'm just talking against the policies. I'm not, I, I love America. I was studying in America. I love American people. I love your President Obama. What do you love about President Obama? I just think that uh, he's a well-meaning man. He wants to change uh, things in, in America. And um, uh, when he talked about healthcare, and I truly believe that healthcare and education is some, something very close to my heart. And uh, so that, that, is, that is the reason I really like Obama. I'm a fan of Obama, but this is the reason I, I really, really like him. Your music, even when it's political actually takes on a tone of collaboration and cooperation. You're not someone who is looking to divide people. I'm talking specifically about your song, Jina Karloge Piar, where you're literally collaborating with an Indian singer, Sukhbir. What was that like having a, a Pakistani and an Indian come together for a musical cause? Uh, in fact, it was in 2000 one or two when the Pakistan Indian border, uh, Indian army was right was really like standing in front of each other and on the borders so at that time you know he's a good friend so I asked him that we should do a song together just to portray the message of love and peace and uh, that's the reason we did the song Do you find it strange when people talk about the divide between India and Pakistan as if they're very different countries? Um you know, I have so many Indian friends. It's, it's. I, I just can't understand. You know, I just, I don't know why uh, people talk about this because, you know, um, in India, 
when you talk about indian people when you talk about pakistani people they talk about peace they talk about love but only government can do this both the government has to they have to decide that they want peace we can't because we love each other we are friends we work together so it's it's all political it has nothing to do with the people of pakistan and india and your your uh your new song is is another in your long line of political songs it's coming out in june you say yeah congratulations uh we're looking forward to hearing your new song shehzad roy and and thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much thank you shehzad roy is a pakistani pop star and a humanitarian who established the zindagi trust for underprivileged children in pakistan Occupy movements flare all around us in the United States. I'm reminded of everything people fight for in a world that is replete with the unjust. As the new host and producer of New America Now, I stepped in to be part of a new America, where dignity and respect is fought for and won in small battles and large. An America where minority and majority does not refer to ethnicity or religion, but to wealth and power. In my time here at New America Now, I've had the wonderful chance to meet and interview personalities who, despite their backgrounds or perhaps because of them, have joined a progressive movement for civil and human rights worldwide. Pakistani politician Imran Khan, a man who may someday be the leader of his beloved nation, showed that even at the heights of fame and influence, a man can still be human and passionate in public. Malalai Joya, a young woman who dared to speak up to the elders of Afghanistan's political arena and say that how they're treating people is wrong, showed that even if you are young and female in a world that is against you, you can make a change. Juan Gonzalez, a renowned journalist who took on the power of a corporate media and won with his show Democracy Now, showed that the fight and grit that it takes to prevail against a mighty media empire comes from a flame within that can never be extinguished. And Sandy Close, the executive director of New America Media, a Polk Award winner and esteemed journalist, showed me, as she has shown everyone who has been fortunate enough to cross her path, that in a world where even in the most democratic societies women face discrimination for having feminine voices and nurturing souls, a woman can change the face of American journalism forever. Thank you to KALW for being a home to New America Now, especially Malihe Razozan and Holly Kernan for your support and advice. Thank you to my small but mighty team, Eric Wayne, Irma Herrera, and Jacob Simas, without whom this show could not have gone on. And thank you to you, our passionate and inquisitive listeners. You make it all worthwhile. As for me, Google me. You'll see where I am and where I'm going. Arrivederci, au revoir, au wiedersehen, salam, khodafiz, for now.
In 2001, New America Media and KALW came together to create a different kind of radio show. One that was about the people and stories making news in ethnic communities and ethnic media, and the media that connected the diaspora with the homeland. It seemed the most natural show for a state where minorities had become the majority. It's hard to believe it's been 10 years already. And it's been a fantastic ride, meeting reporters from the Chinese-language daily Singtao to Arab comedians to Indian novelists and Latino musicians. In those 10 years, ethnic media has grown in leaps and bounds, and their reporters and stories have a far more prominent profile in our media culture than ever before. New America Now is bringing down the curtains on this show for now. But we'll be continuing to cover the news from ethnic and diasporan media and bringing their perspective on the 2012 elections on our website, newamericamedia.org. For me, it's been a huge privilege to meet and learn from many amazing guests. But most of all, it's been a thrill to work with the very small team that put together the show week after week. The producers who gave the show its vision over the years, Holly Kernan, Mary Ambrose, and Inga Bookbinder. Our technical producer, Eric Wayne, who gave it class. Shireen Sadagi, who came on as host after I left for India. And the people who believed in it at New America Media and KALW. Nicole Sawaya, Matt Martin, and Sandy Close. Thank you all. But the biggest thanks, as always, goes to you who listened. Thanks for the company. Thanks for listening. Until next time, from Kolkata, India, I am Sandeep Roy. ago when Holly Kernan asked me to help her produce a new radio show featuring views from the ethnic media with a totally green host, I thought it sounded risky. It was, and it paid off. Over the last 10 years, New America Now has won many awards, and we've helped KALW change the face of local programming. I'd like to thank KALW for taking such a risk and supporting us without question. They truly are your local public radio station. As for me, this show turned out to be the longest-running program of my 26 years in the business. And I've been blessed to have worked alongside some of the most talented people I've ever met. Now, I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in every week and supporting us every step of the way. It's truly been an honor. For all of us at New America Now... I'm Eric Wayne, technical producer, turning out the lights.